This is an ABC podcast. Here's a big question. To what extent should we adapt the law to recognise non-human thinking? Should a machine be recognised as an inventor? Patent law as it stands is probably not going to survive as we know it in a world in which there are artificial intelligence inventors. Should Happy the Elephant be set free? They brought a writ of habeas corpus with regard to Happy the Elephant against Bronx Zoo. They were seeking to give liberty rights to an elephant. And should Naruto the monkey get copyright royalties? The court said the monkey may well have created the photo but was not a human author and as a result, copyright did not subsist in the photo. Welcome to The Law Report. Damien Carrick here. A Google software engineer and artificial intelligence researcher made headlines all around the world last year when he claimed that the company's latest system for generating chatbots was sentient. The announcement caused a rush by some industry colleagues to dismiss Blake Lemoyne's claim. Google put him on leave for publishing transcripts of his interaction with the program and he's reportedly since been fired from his job. The controversy came amid a coordinated worldwide push to have courts acknowledge machines as inventors. Associate Professor Alexandra George from the UNSW Law School is following developments closely. Alexandra George, before we focus in on the litigation... What were the claims made about the Google chatbot generator? The claims are quite astounding. The AI systems are supposed to have said, I'm aware of my existence, I desire to learn more about the world, and I feel happy or sad at times. I want everyone to understand that I am, in fact, a person. That's quite exciting when we're talking about whether or not machines are inventors. And these were responses to a question put to the chatbot uh, generator by a software engineer, Blake Lemoyne. So he's then told the world that, yes, my chatbot generator or this chatbot generator is artificial intelligence. But what's been the commentary or the analysis of this over the last few days? Some of the AI specialists are saying that the machine is very good at parroting responses to queries and not necessarily understanding those queries, but has been trained to answer in a particular way. A very engaging way, which uh, tugs at our heartstrings, perhaps, um, and our hopes for what machines might be capable of. Well, it's possible people are seeing what they want to see to some extent. So we have this debate in the zeitgeist, which has captured the public imagination, but there are also very serious legal battles taking place in courts all around the world about whether or not a machine can be credited as an inventor. Now, the owners of an artificial intelligence machine called Davis have been submitting patent applications on behalf of their machines all around the world. And if this strategic litigation succeeds, it will turn intellectual property law upside down, won't it? So, Alexandra George, tell me, what is Davis? DABIS stands for Device for the Autonomous Bootstrapping of Unified Sentience. So it's basically an AI system that's been created by a Dr. Stephen Taylor, who's a, a software engineer, and he says that his machine, DABIS, can invent and has in fact invented. And so that's what the patent applications are for, to try and see whether these inventions can be patented under the existing patent laws around the world. And what has Dabas supposedly invented? What are the what are the inventions? 
The inventions in these cases are quite simple. There's a food container and there's a flashing light for attracting attention in emergencies. But I think the point is not so much what the inventions are because maybe the the key point here isn't actually to be able to monopolize use of those inventions so much as to prove the point, run a test case to find out whether or not inventions made by a machine, by artificial intelligence, can in fact be patented. The people behind Abbas are filing patents with uh, patent offices all around the world to try and get this, uh, this very novel legal concept cemented into law. Yes. Well, what they've done is they've put in a, a central application that gets sent out to countries that they nominate around the world. And I think they've nominated something like 130 countries. And so each country that then looks at it, when it arrives at the patent office in each jurisdiction, they are deciding whether under their existing laws, these inventions could be patented. And so the first thing that they're looking at is whether or not a machine, an artificial intelligence machine, can be considered to be an inventor under existing laws in each country. So what's the state of play? There have been uh, documents filed in the High Court of Australia. How has it reached that point and, and where will it go from here on in? Oh Well, it's reached that point because back in early 2021, the Australian Deputy Commissioner of Patents decided that Darbus couldn't be named as an inventor under Australian law. So they went back and said to the applicant, Dr. Taylor, please lodge um, an application that names your inventor. He said, well, I have. It's Darbus. And they said, no, we want to know who the human inventor. And he said, well, there isn't one. So that application fell by the wayside because the requirements had not been met for patentability. Dr. Taylor then sought judicial review in the Federal Court of Australia in the middle of last year, in July 2021. Justice Beach of the Federal Court delivered a decision that was a watershed decision. It was the first one around the world that had said, yes, we can recognise an artificial intelligence inventor for patent purposes. And that made headlines everywhere. It was really, really big news in the patent world. But then the Commissioner of Patents appealed that case, so it went to the full Federal Court of Australia on appeal. Um, It was quite a big appeal, often appeal courts, normally appeal courts will have three judges, this one had five, it had the Chief Justice plus four intellectual property judges, and they heard the case in February, they delivered a judgment in April this year that overturned Justice Beecher's decision and said, no, in Australia... The legislation doesn't include artificial intelligence robots as inventors under the Patent Act. So that was a unanimous decision of five judges. And now and now, um, the people behind Davis are going to the High Court and uh, the, you know, there were more documents filed. What were in those documents? Those documents are really just saying that the full court was mistaken in holding that the word inventor in the Patents Act 1900 means a natural person. So Dr Taylor's saying... That was a mistake in the way that the full court decided the case. The Commissioner of Patents has replied saying they don't agree there's a mistake. It's just a standard question of statutory construction. No error has been made and the High Court should just leave things as they are. So we will wait and see what the High Court decides to do with this. So it's now considering whether or not to grant leave to appeal and and have the High Court resolve this once and for all. 
That's right. And so Australia is just one of the many legal battlefields in which this kind of argument is being run. Just recently, I think a week or so ago, there was a, a court hearing at a federal appeals court in Virginia, USA. So there's a race to try and get it to the High Court of Australia, but also to the Supreme Court of the USA and presumably to other sort of final appeal courts all around the world. That's right. There's also an equivalent case going through seeking appeal, a leave to appeal up to the um, highest court in Britain as well. So the um, Australian, British and US cases are all running pretty much in sync. We're perhaps a little bit ahead of the others. Um, But then there are a whole lot of other countries coming down the pipeline as well. So the applications to have Darbus's inventions accepted for patents in various countries have been rejected in many, many places. The only country that has actually allowed it through is South Africa. So that was a kind of a tick from the patents office, but that may well be appealed at some point later down the track. That's right. That was just the procedure in South Africa. And so it went through in the normal way and basically they get their patent. But if they wanted to do anything with it or if anyone objected to it, it could be knocked over. The German courts arrived at an interesting compromise, didn't they? Well, it it was a a compromise. They said that um, so long as Dr. Taylor was named as the inventor who prompted Darbus to create the inventions, they could accept that. So it was it was a compromise. It was kind of allowing wriggle room around the meaning of inventor without actually having to change the law. Right. So peeling back the onion a bit and saying, yes, sure, a machine can be an inventor, but a machine has to have its own inventor. That's right. It was a very pragmatic decision. So this is a very expensive, coordinated, worldwide legal campaign by the the owners of Davis. Why are they doing it? Why? As far as I can work out, and I have spoken to some of the people who are behind um, these cases, as far as I can work out, it is to test the point. It is to show that patent law as it stands is probably not going to survive as we know it in a world in which there are artificial intelligence inventors. And if you think about the history of patent law, uh, you know, the earliest patent laws, first patent statute dates back to 1474 in Venice, the old Venetian state. The earliest English patent law was 1623. So these are very old laws. And in fact, our current patent legislation in Australia has language directly cut and pasted from the Statute of Monopolies 1623, which was that original British patent law. Law that was drafted hundreds of years ago is now trying to deal with something like artificial intelligence inventors. And I think what the people behind these cases are trying to prove is that something will need to change, whether it's a brand new law or whether it is an an amendment to the current law or whether it's just creating legal fictions so that you can say that one thing, inventor, which has traditionally been a person, now also includes a machine. However, the, the legal system chooses to deal with it. I think the point here is to show that it really needs to be dealt with, because if it's not, society's going to face some interesting challenges very, very soon. And in your view, should artificial intelligence be allowed to to patent new inventions? I mean, should should we label and register machines as inventors? I think that under the current law as it stands, it probably doesn't work if you do that. So if governments were going to do that, I think that they need to 
make some other changes to the law. So my answer to that would be no, unless other things are changed. And if we're going to change other things, my suggestion would be we actually create a bespoke sui generis law, especially for AI, IP, artificial intelligence, intellectual property, that it is created specifically with the environment of AI in mind that looks at what we're trying to achieve. So what are we trying to incentivize? Who are we trying to incentivize? Do computers need incentives or or do the people behind them need incentives to churn out the very useful inventions that that these machines are likely to make very, very soon and and are already contributing to the making of? Because there are exciting inventions like new antibiotics and things that artificial intelligence is helping to devise at present as we speak. So these days are upon us and the technology is racing ahead. So what happens if one jurisdiction, Australia, USA, UK, somewhere in Europe, somewhere in, in Asia, says says yes, or South Africa says, says yes, um, machines can be registered inventors. What's going to happen to all the other jurisdictions um, which have a totally different legal framework? They might follow or they might come up with their own ideas. It could end up with a giant global mess with a whole lot of different jurisdictions doing different things. If you have countries going it alone with new types of AIIP law, then you really could end up with quite an interesting situation where you have investment flooding into one country or flooding out of another. Um, You could have problems with people trying to enforce their rights across international borders, people trying to get access to use inventions across international borders. So there's a lot that's riding on these decisions. Associate Professor Alexandra George, thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Oh, you're welcome. Associate Professor Alexandra George from UNSW Law School. She's co-author of of an article in a recent edition of Nature magazine titled Artificial Intelligence is Breaking Patent Law. While some activists are pushing for the recognition of machine thinking, others are focused on animal sentience. In June last year, animal activists experienced a setback. The New York State Court of Appeals ruled that an elephant living in the Bronx Zoo is not a legal person and therefore not entitled to her liberty. Animal law expert Melbourne University Professor Katie Barnett says the court reached the decision despite acknowledging that Happy the Elephant is intelligent and deserves proper care and compassion. Happy the Elephant is an elephant who was born in Thailand and captured in the 1970s and taken to the US where she was put on display in Bronx Zoo in 1977 and has been there ever since. And an organisation called the Non-Human Rights Project commenced litigation on behalf of this elephant. What is this organisation and what was it seeking in court for Happy the Elephant? They seek to use the common law to grant animals the right of liberty which people have from the common law. So they're kind of inspired by emancipist movements with regard to slavery and so forth. And they issued what's called a writ of habeas corpus, What that requires the person who's detaining someone to do, it literally means 
that you have the body. So you have to bring the person that you've detained before the court and show what your authority to detain that person is. But they brought a writ of habeas corpus with regard to Happy the Elephant against Bronx Zoo. So they used this common law writ effectively to give, they were seeking to give liberty rights to an elephant. And in particular, I believe they wanted to have this elephant moved from a a fairly confined enclosure at Bronx Zoo to some kind of free-range enclosure, much bigger, you know, paddock's worth of enclosure somewhere outside of central New York. Yes, that's correct. So what did the court find? So there were seven judges. A majority of the court found basically that it would be inappropriate to give any elephant or any non-human animal a liberty interest. They didn't dispute the fact that Happy was a very intelligent animal and that elephants are intelligent beings deserving of proper care and compassion. In fact, Happy is one of the first elephants on record to have recognised herself in a mirror. But they said to award her a liberty right would disturb the current operation of the law. And they said it would have an implication on all kinds of things, including disruption of property rights, disruption of the agricultural industry, medical research, and so on and so forth. So they were reluctant to grant happy liberty rights. And so they said happy could not be let free. Now, Katie Barnett, the the non-human rights project have been running similar cases for a number of years. They had run an unsuccessful case a few years ago involving chimps, chimpanzees. I guess at the heart of these legal attempts to move the law is the idea that animals are intelligent and somehow that intelligence gives them personhood and therefore they should be entitled to rights. Yes. So really the crux of the argument is that we often treat animals as if they were equivalent to inanimate property, but they're not. You'll note that the Non-Human Rights Project has chosen animals which are highly sentient and sensitive and which clearly have their own interests and wants and desires. And so the crux of it is to say animals are not simply property and they have rights including rights to live free and to not be confined in uncomfortable spaces. Do you think that the law should be extended in this way to to recognise the legal personhood of animals? I'm not sure that the writ of habeas corpus is the right way in which to deal with this problem, basically. I do think it's arguable, and in fact, even the majority acknowledges that animals are not property in the same way as other forms of property, and that the way in which we behave to animals is limited in ways that It's not with regard to other property. So, for example, we prohibit cruelty to animals, we allow them to be beneficiaries of a trust, so on and so forth. 
but I'm just not sure that the writ of habeas corpus is the right way to go about dealing with that problem of animals being property. Dr Katie Barnett, Professor of Private Law at University of Melbourne and co-author of Guilty Pigs, The Weird and Wonderful History of Animal Law. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. It's always a pleasure, Damien. So far today, we've been talking machines and intellectual property law and animals and legal personhood. Let's now mash those ideas together. A few years ago, there was a copyright dispute involving British photographer David Slater and a monkey, a crested macaque named Naruto. Michael Williams, a partner with Gilbert and Tobin, is one of Australia's leading intellectual property lawyers. It was a pretty interesting case because it was a a nature photographer who was taking photos of various crested monkeys. And in the course of doing so, one of the curious monkeys picked up the camera that he had set on a tripod to be taking photos and started using that camera and, and appears to have taken some of the photos himself or itself. As I understand it, he set up his camera, this was in, uh, in Indonesia, he set up his camera with a remote shutter trigger to allow the monkeys to approach the camera and look at themselves in the mirror. The monkeys enjoyed this and, and uh, some of them took snaps and there are some lovely shots of, of monkeys which look like selfies. They, they, they look like they're smiling at the camera. So they're, they're beautiful, beautiful, very engaging images. Yes, exactly. And so what's interesting that follows from that is that it was the monkeys who triggered the process that created the photo. And where this ultimately went was the photographer was upset when these photographs were appearing without his authorization on internet sites and various locations, including Wikipedia. And so he sought to try and enforce his copyright, saying that he was the owner of the copyright in the photo, but he failed. Why? Because he hadn't pressed the trigger? Because he hadn't made the work? That's right. So one of the sort of foundational features of copyright in certain types of material, and photographs are an example of one of them, is that there has to be an author and there has to be sufficient authorship. Now, copyright around that kind of material and and literary works like novels and poems and things, it's all based on the principle that copyright will subsist where there is a sufficient degree of originality and authorship, and they're sort of two correlated concepts. It's always been assumed that that degree of authorship meant that there had to be a human author. And so this was an example of a case which tested that proposition to see whether, in this instance, is there sufficient authorship by him or, in truth, is the monkey the author? So he loses his battle. This uh, photographer, British photographer David Slater, loses his battle with the people who published his photos without um, acknowledging his authorship and paying him royalties. Then, at the same time... Peter, the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, goes to court to try and argue that the monkey should be acknowledged as the copyright owner or holder. And what did the court find, I think, was in California? So that's the other side of the coin. And so in that case, Peter also failed on the basis that the court said that uh, the monkey may well have created the photo but was not a human author and as a result, copyright did not subsist in the photo because only photographs taken by human authors would be given copyright protection. So nobody is the holder of the copyright. David Slater didn't have that right because he hadn't clicked the uh, button, but the monkey didn't either because it wasn't a person. That's right. And 
this sort of illustrates an increasing conundrum, really, in copyright with the greater use of technology. The same kind of result falling between two stools has occurred where people are using computers to compile information, perhaps create databases and organize and present information. And in those cases as well, unless there is some particular way the law has been defined to identify the copyright, there are a number of instances, including in Australian cases, where the court has found that it's the computer that's the creator, but because the computer is not a human author, there is no copyright. That's really fascinating. So, so coming full circle, we started this program by looking at attempts by a man in America called Stephen Taylor to try and establish that artificial intelligence that he had created called Davis should be registered as, as, as an inventor, uh, should be granted a patent, that, not him, the actual artificial intelligence. Now, this same man has also been trying to have AI obtain copyright in an artwork. Now, this is a, a digital image created by something he calls a creativity machine algorithm, and it's a digital image of the entrance of a railway tunnel covered in wisteria. I think it's called A Recent Entrance to Paradise is the name of the image. What happened in that attempt to obtain copyright? Well, he ended up running into exactly the same problem. So under the US copyright system, there is a US copyright office where you can register copyright works and material. And uh, it's a feature of their particular legal system that we do not share in Australia. But he applied for copyright registration for this computer-generated artwork, and the Copyright Office knocked it back. And they knocked it back for the same reason as the photographer failed to enforce copyright in the photograph of the monkey on the basis that there was no human author and therefore copyright couldn't be attached to the artwork. Stephen Taylor is, uh, you know, has this uh, coordinated litigation in many, many different jurisdictions all around the world to try and establish AI as an inventor through the patent offices. But also he's seeking to have uh, AI recognised as a copyright holder. Do you think ultimately he will be successful in either or both of these endeavours? I doubt he's going to be successful following these legal processes. So either challenging things in court or applying for patents or applying for copyright registration. There might be an exception somewhere in the world, but generally speaking, not. But what he may well be successful in doing is raising this to a level of awareness where policymakers and those involved in technology and the creative industries focusing again on whether or not these types of creations and inventions should sit outside any of the existing legal systems. And I think he, by proving this point that it can't be protected, he's probably paving the way for uh, policy reform and some pretty strong arguments and at least lively debates about where the line should be drawn between what's capable of being protected and what's not. Michael Williams, partner with Gilbert and Tobin and one of Australia's leading IP lawyers. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. It's a great pleasure.
Well, I hope this episode sparked some lively debate amongst your friends and family. Don't forget the Law Report is available as a podcast from the ABC Listen app. Big thanks to technical producer Tim Simons and also to producer Christina Kukolia. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.